Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Andrew Neal, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by an activist who rose to prominence on social media, TV and radio as a vocal backer of Jeremy Corbyn. Ash Sarkar describes herself as a communist, which we discuss in the interview, and is a contributing editor at left-wing media site Novara Media. We also talk about her support for the former Labour leader, her relationship with the party now, and the tone of debate on Twitter, where she's faced terrible abuse. This is the backstory from Tortoise. Ashakar, you told Piers Morgan that you were, quote, literally a communist. What do you mean by communist? What do I mean by communist? I think that means that everything that we need as humans to survive should be collectively owned, collectively managed, and that we should have access to them on the basis that we have a right to them rather than simply we've been born into a fortunate enough position to be able to afford them. Um, I don't believe that markets are the most efficient method of distributing resources. And I think that one way in which we see that is with the climate crisis. And I think collective stewardship, particularly in this age of climate crisis, it to me, it looks like our way out. Very few people opt to be communists these days. Um, why have you? What's propelled you in this direction? Who propelled you? Who propelled me? I suppose it started when I read Black Skins, White Masks by Franz Fanon. Um, it was a book that my mum gave me. And she gave it to me because she wanted me to be able to understand life as a person of colour. And as you read Fanon, there are words like lumpen proletariat, and I didn't know where it came from. So I then got my hands on a copy of the Communist Manifesto. And I was a teenager at this time, so I must have been like 13, 14. And the impact that the Communist Manifesto had on me was exactly the one that Marx and Engels intended. It's this phenomenally rousing text. You know, it's very gothic, it's very dramatic. Um, and I was like, my God, this makes a lot of sense. And then I got to uni and I started thinking about it, not just in an emotional way, but in a more rational way. And it made sense for me of why democracies are so weak in the face of capital, why our media is the way it is. This idea of base and superstructure I found really compelling as an analysis. Um, and yeah, it, it made sense to me on both an emotional level and as a way of making sense of the world I lived in. It makes you, though, an outlier 
to have these views? What, why now do so few people uh, follow the route you, you have? Well, the reason why so few people follow the route that I have is because communism was largely defeated by the time you get to the 1990s. One, you've got communist parties across the world either being massacred or discredited or forcibly broken up. Two, you've got the fall of the Soviet Union. Of course, that's a huge deal. And what you're left with are these sort of, you know, rump authoritarian states where it wouldn't be very nice to live. Um, the exception, of course, being China, which is a sort of, you know, state capitalist bureaucracy in its own way. And so the utopianism and the romance of communism really, you know, was was diminished by that. Um, and in terms of being an outlier, I, I really don't mind that. I think it'd be very boring if everyone just had to judge their opinions according to where they think the crowd is. So am I right in assuming from what you've said that you consider yourself a Marxist? Would I consider myself a Marxist? In lots of ways, yes, but I think there's sometimes a tendency to look at Marx as something of a prophet and you have to adhere to the revealed word of Marx and not think about the thinkers who took his work forward. Like I said, Franz Fanon is, of course, really important to me because he takes this idea of the lumpen proletariat, looks at it through the lens of uh, colonialism. Gramsci, for me, is really important of how you make sense of what goes on in Western liberal democracies. Uh, Stuart Hall, then, for the, the cultural component. The, the British philosopher. Yeah, the, the British cultural uh, thinker. Um, so all of these thinkers, you trace it back to Marx, but they are doing things with Marx's thought that Marx doesn't, doesn't get to grapple with. Do I take it from what you said earlier, then, that, that your version of communism still involves the abolition of private property? Well, I would say in terms of the... the abolition of, of private means of expropriating things which should be collectively owned, managed and stewarded. Um, not in terms of you can't own pieces of furniture, you can't own your home. Um, you could own your home. Yeah, I think that, I think that a home ownership... Even a big one. Even a big one. Well, put it this way. I think that the demise of council house building, uh, the introduction of right to buy, it's made the housing market worse for everybody. I think having a mixed housing economy would be quite a good thing. Ultimately, it means that home isn't what it is now, which is this sort of, um, you know, bubble of asset price appreciation is doing something different. But I've got no beef with private ownership of a home if it means that homes are available to everybody. But you said earlier that you wanted the collective provision of everything. I'd say the collective stewardship of everything. And that doesn't mean that you don't have some level of private property. Um, but ultimately, you've got the state being responsible for making sure that you've got the supply side covered, um, where private ownership isn't isn't getting the job done. Would the state own the media? Would the state own the media? Now, this is something which I think is really important. I believe in state regulation in the sense of sure, things like that. Ofcom, Impress. I really do believe in that. I believe in state-funded public service broadcast. But we state have that con- too. But state-controlled media... No. Um, so, but wouldn't the state own the media? Not necessarily, no. I mean, you do have models of communism where you've got rooms for things like cooperatives, right? And Navarro Media, for instance, we're effectively a co-op. We've got a flat pay structure. If the, you know, media organisation goes bust tomorrow, it's not, you know, the two you, directors who get but, everything. But you have that in a capitalist society. We have that in a capitalist society. Where, where, say, where, where is there a Navarra in a communist society? Well, hopefully you'll see in 20 or 30 years. So where has there um, been? Well, the thing is, is that you have had, I mean, obviously not in, you know, Soviet Russia, where you have an incredibly tightly controlled media environment, but you have had in 
Uh, of course, Catalonia, you had a hugely radical independent press as well during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you had some really interesting experiments with radical left wing and in some ways hostile to the communist governance at the time in Bologna. You had the autonomous media, which is what we're modelled on. I'm not looking for top down state control of everything. What I'm looking for is collective custodianship, um, which does involve things like cooperative ownership. Um, I would be very uncomfortable with the state owning or controlling all media. But I also, and I think this is the, you know, reverse back to you Uno card. I don't think in an environment where you've got over three quarters of the newspaper circulation being controlled by four billionaire families that we do have a free press. Um, I think in some ways we've got an entirely constrained and restricted press. To get to the where you want to be with your kind of communism, do we have to go through the dictatorship of the proletariat? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. I go through oh, so this. We might. I go through this all the time where I think about democracy versus command and control because I do believe there is something inherently emancipatory about the democratic process, democratic freedoms. Um, that's where very much, you know, I'm not a Leninist and I'm certainly not a Stalinist and I'm not a Trotskyist. Um, I believe that the democratic process is important. Um, but how you form that that counterweight to capital and how you deal with the brute force of the capitalist state. I mean, this is, of course, stuff that Gramsci um, thinks about at length and is working through in the prison notebooks. Um, my answer to that is a big old I don't know. One of the things Marx advocated strongly was what he called revolutionary terror, which is part of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And most of those who formed governments based on Marx's doctrine were pretty keen on revolutionary terror. They carried it out. Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. Well, of course, the origins of the phrase revolutionary terror come from the French Revolution and Robespierre. Um, have you read A Place of Greater Safety by Hilary Mantel? No. It's a beautiful novel, one of my favourite novels. And she's really grappling with this question of revolutionary ten terror, the desire to keep the revolution going in the face of all enemies and whatever, and also balancing against human life and she's got a line which I think gets right to the heart of the contradiction which is what is one life in the grand scheme of things nothing of course it means everything to its possessor and for me when it comes to this question of political violence whether that is the revolutionary political violence that you're talking about in terms of Marx whether you're talking about emancipatory political violence which is what Franz Fanon writes about in The Wretched of the Earth for me there is this this stubborn idea of the sanctity of the human life, which I find hard to um, collapse or wave away in terms of, uh, you know, the, the revolutionary impulse. But isn't that in conflict with all that we know about communist real-life experience, where the sanctity of human life is always, uh, often the last thing that matters? But I would say that the sanctity of human life under the system we have is often the last thing that matters. Really? Where, where are our gulags? Where are our gulags? Well, we offshore them. I mean, this is the this is the thing about capitalist societies is that we can have our lovely European social democracies, but what goes on in Libya and at the borders of Fortress Europe is absolutely horrendous. When you look at the conditions for people working in coltan mines or coal mines or child laborers in India. What we do with global capitalism is we say, oh, we've got a lovely society here, but over there in the hinterland, in the periphery, it is, is absolutely, you know, stained so, with so, blood. So a, a textile factory in Sri Lanka mm. paying very poor wages mm. 
and turning out um, clothes that we in the West buy mm. cheaply. That's the equivalent of a Stalinist gulag? I'm not saying that they're equivalents. I'm saying well, that capitalism absolutely churns through human life. And if you want to measure body counts, and this is the interesting thing which Amartya Sen does in his work on famines, you end up with an astonishingly high uh, death rate from famines in a democratic and liberal India after independence. Absolutely grotesque. Higher than Stalin's treatment of the kulaks? Well, that's the research that Amartya Sen comes out with. And Chomsky says if you apply the same methodology from the Black Book of Communism to India, you end up in one country alone with a higher death count. But famines have happened in the non-communist world because of climate issues because of government incompetence, because of over-farming, because of distribution issues. Uh, famines have happened in communist war, regimes through direct, intentional economic policy. But I think if you are, again, to Isn't that true? look at the colonial era, yes, but I would also say the same has happened in the non-communist world. If you talk to... Um, somebody from Ireland and you talk about the great hunger, they would say this was an intentional British policy. But that's if you talk not to true. people who if you talk to people but it's not true. about the Bengal famine, well yes, you had the turning away of certain but, grain ships, you only had relief coming in like but, towards uh, uh, the end. There's two two different issues here. The causes of the potato farm famine in the eighteen forties and the British government's response to it, which everyone agrees was wholly inadequate. But the cause of it was not an intention. It was not intentional British government policy to starve the Irish to death. But you did have the continuing exports of grain from Ireland during the potato blight. You also, and again, I, I know I'm talking about Amartya Sen That's a lot. That's a response. Think, it didn't cause it. But in terms of the impact of deaths, then yes, it, it did cause the deaths, if not the blight itself. I mean, given that every time people with your views come to power... And the result is the same, which is authoritarian dictatorships and economic squalor. Why do you keep going back to the same thing? Well, I would also differ with the idea that every time communists come to power, you do have economic squalor and authoritarianism. Well, give, give, give me an example where that hasn't happened. Kerala. So Kerala has had communist regional and local governments for absolute right. decades now. And compared to the rest of India in terms of its literacy, healthcare mm. outcomes, it does an awful lot better. But it's not a communist society. But it's, a, but it's but, communist but, but, governments. But, but, yeah, I understand that. Well, Bologna has, has had communist governments, but it's not a communist city. Well, no, Bologna, uh, I'd but, also but, say, if you if you go back uh, to the origins uh, of Navarra Media, we're very much no, against I, that I tradition that. of... Uh, I understand that. But there's a world of difference between local government being run by communists uh, within a, a capitalist or a non-communist nation state and a communist nation state in which which controls all the levers of power. Now, when that has happened, where's the success story? But I'm I'm saying that one there isn't one form of communism, right? But I won't give, is, give this, me any. This is this is a this is a long and rich political tradition of which the Leninism and Maoism is just one part. And I do not associate myself with Mao. I do not associate myself with Lenin. No, but I'm trying um, to find any example of where in it, when a nation state has ended up following the route that you wanted to, that it's been a success. The thing that I'm saying is that I think the capitalist society that we have, the trajectory that the world is on in terms of climate change in particular, I think that in 40 years time, we'll be looking at that and go, well, why did we prioritise the market above all else? Why did we trust the market to get us out of this when we could have had 
collective ownership, collective stewardship, which, which would have allowed I, us levers, which would have solved that, this problem. Except that it just results in poverty. Could, could I su- suggest that every country that moves to some form of market economy, and like your versions of communism, there are many versions of the market economy as well. Singapore is very different from Sweden, uh, for example. Britain is different from America. France is certainly different from America. But they're all versions of the market economy. Every country that adopts that approach ends up with rising living standards, rising educational standards, less poverty, and rising per capita incomes. Every country. Whereas communism is the opposite. So I take issue with that. I, I really do take issue with that. I think you're completely right to say that there are lots of different visions of a market economy. I think you're completely correct to say that. But they all work better than communism is the point I'm putting to you. No, I'm not, I, I, I entirely, dis- me, I entirely uh, disagree with that. Me an, I think, well, but give me examples of where a communist society has performed better than a market economy. So here's one thing which I think, and again, this is about climate change. If you no, want, no, 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 I asked you the question. No, 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 I'm answering uh, your question. I'm answering your how question. Does a, how does a market, how, where has there been a communist society that has operated better than a market economy? Okay, I think that on certain metrics, Cuba has operated better. Now, it hasn't been on GDP, but if you want to look at healthcare outcomes, Cuba, compared to other Caribbean nations, has done much better, right? Much, much better. Um, I know that you don't like the Kerala example, but for me, that is really no, important. No, I, 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 I think the Kerala example is very interesting. I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying that communists getting in charge of regional or local government is not the same as them running a nation state. That was my point there. I, I, I accept your example. Of and that. then the third thing that I'd want to say, and this is about looking towards the future, I think that China is obviously a, a, a bad, polluting country at present. But when you look at their ability to build infrastructure, when you look at things like high-speed rail, and then if you look at the pace at which the decarbonisation is going to happen, I think that they're in a much better position to decarbonise very quickly than, they're, say, they're, they're America. Build, they're building a new coal-fired power station every week. I'm not saying that they're not bad polluters. They absolutely are. But you just they said absolutely that they're are. leading to decarbonisation. No, I'm saying if you look at their ability to decarbonise quickly... But they're not. Once they hit peak coal. No, I'm not saying it's happening now, but I'm saying their ability to do that, I think, is greater than America's ability to do that. But America's already substantially decarbonized by moving from coal to gas. But moving from away from gas and getting rid of, you know, yeah, but that could fracking well be in the Montana. I mean, look, I mean, look at... I mean, Ameri- I don't understand American, how... American China, rail I mean, infrastructure. I don't American understand. rail infrastructure may as well be in the 19th century. You know, I understand that. America has major infrastructure problems, which Mr. Biden uh, is so far without huge success trying to uh, address. I don't understand how anybody, though your colleague at Novara has, could argue that China's in the vanguard of decarbonisation. No, I'm not saying it's the vanguard of decarbonisation. I'm saying if you want to project 20, 30 years in the future where I think that every single nation state on the planet is going to go, oh my God, what have we been doing all this time? And you're going to have to pull the levers to wean yourself off fossil fuels very, very quickly. Which country is going to have the ability to do that rapidly? I think it will be China. You weren't a member of the Labour Party, uh, but you were part of the campaign which won Jeremy Corbyn the Labour leadership. I wasn't part of the campaign which won him the Labour leadership. You you were in favour of him becoming leader. Um, I'll be honest with you, at the time... I was a late adopter. Um, At the time, I was sort of still a bit of like a sulky anarchist. And I sort of thought like, oh, the party political form is dead. Um, 
And it took me a while to see the real opportunity. It wasn't really until 2017 itself, shortly before the election, when I thought this thing's really important. But you joined the Corbyn Labour Party. I did. And you hadn't been before. So there was some element of support there. Did I mean, did you see the, him as a start on the road to communism or just a Labour leader who was at least roughly on the same planet as you? I saw him as a Labour leader who was capable of taking the concerns of my generation seriously. I didn't see him as a starter on the road to communism at all. Um, And I didn't necessarily see him as being on the same planet as me in lots of ways, um, particularly to do with drugs policy, particularly to do with policing policy. We were really, really miles apart. But the reason why... You'd see those pictures of him on Holloway Road and he'd be, like, surrounded by, like, you know, just, like, youths. Do you know what I mean? Just, Mm. like, you know, teenagers wearing North Face jackets. (laughs) It's because he was speaking to their material conditions. And even though I am, you know, at heart a kind of, you know, disappointed utopian, you can't help but be moved by that. And that was what got me to join the party. If Labour was going to choose a, a leader more to the left than traditional. Was he the right left-winger to choose? I don't know. I mean, because then you get into these counterfactuals where you could pick a different MP, for example, John McDonnell, and he would never have gotten to the ballot because he'd... I mean, am I allowed to curse on this? A little bit, yes. All right. He'd pissed off everybody in the party. You know, That's quite mild. You know, including, <laughs> including everyone in um, you know, the socialist campaign group as well. So I think that... It could have only been Corbyn because of the unique set of circumstances that were there. And, uh, you know, I've said this before, but Corbyn's greatest strengths were also his greatest weaknesses. He couldn't be anyone other than himself. And people were drawn to him because of that. But it also meant that when you had to be adaptive and reactive and responsive and to respond to things that maybe you think are unfair, he wasn't he wasn't well placed to do any of those things. Was there a time when you thought he could be Prime Minister? Yeah. yeah. When, when was that? Um, it was in the you know final, final run-up to the 2017 election. I thought this could happen. Oh, you thought he might have won in 2017? I thought, I thought this really could happen. Helped by the quality of Theresa May's campaign. Wow, people say that a lot, but she added a lot to the Tories' vote share. It just wasn't distributed She lost properly. a lot to the Tory uh, she, she parliamentary lost, representation. She, she, she lost in seats, and that's because it was a, a, a crap campaign. But That and, was my point. And, and these, are, you know, these, these were the warning signs for Corbyn, really, which is you looked at where she was stacking up votes. That was, you know, the crumbling red wall. Um, but no, I thought... I thought you know, it's almost painful to, to remember it because I just think, oh, what could have been? If he'd become Prime Minister... What do you think Britain's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have been? I think that I think that in some ways it wouldn't have been that different. I think well, you that think the space, he would have he would have sent weapons from day one. Um, not from day one. I think it would have been later down the line. But I think he, he would have, have sent heavy that. armor. I think that his um, I think that his uh, you know NATO skepticism would have been tempered by the nature of being in government. He would have encouraged Finland and Sweden to join NATO. I don't think it would have encouraged Finland or Sweden to join NATO, but then again, I don't think many of us would have thought that would be where we end up, right? You know, from the beginning. I thought no, that but the Finland British government ha- has encouraged. I mean, they've been in the vanguard of encouraging these two Scandinavian countries to uh, to join. I mean, 
Even not in power, Mr Corbyn hasn't been able to bring himself to say one kind word about President Zelensky. Has he not? I mean, I've not been keeping up with his interviews, if I'm honest with you. I really haven't been. Um, he, he's attacked. He, he said he was against the invasion, but I mean, who isn't against the invasion? Uh, well, he said, I don't know him, so I can't yeah, speak to him. Exactly. Um, I mean, I think that's, again, that's a very Corbyn thing, <laughs> which is... You know, there's an answer which is politic and then there's the one that he wants to give and he gives the one that he wants to give. Um, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that our response would have been the same. I don't think... I, I or anything like... I, I genuinely think that in power, when you're confronted with the day-to-day decisions of the deteriorating situation on the, Euro- on the Ukrainian border, um, the scale of the Russian invasion, the devastation in Booker and Mariupol, I, I think that ultimately the response would have been similar in the same ballpark, purely because that's what the situation demands. And yet he's been almost entirely silent about it. I'm not I'm not his spokesperson. I don't well, know I understand why. that, but you did uh, want him to be prime minister. I did want him to be prime minister. And you yeah. thought he could be. So that's, that's why I'm asking you. The, the Labour left has taken control of the party twice in the past 70 years. Uh, both times it's taken Labour to catastrophic defeats. Isn't it time to learn that lesson? Well, the question I would pose back is, in Tony Blair's three back-to-back election victories, you know, the 1997 landslide, how many of those policy decisions are still with us, right? Sure Start got gutted. Um, you know, the sort of Blairite social settlement of which was, you know, a kind of like little bit more social democratic Thatcherism. Um, you know, that's all gone. And so I'm not saying that I'm a particularly adept p- political strategist because I don't think I am. Um, but what I would say to the sort of, you know, moderate or right wing of the Labour Party is why haven't you been able to entrench any of your social programme? Why was it so well, the easy minimum, to wipe the, away? The minimum wage is still there. Minimum wage is still there. The huge increases in spending in schools and hospitals that happened under Blair Brown. But now Brown, look at what's happened to per there. pupil funding. You know, what's happened to the NHS. And one of the things which I think now interest rates are going up has been but, unforgivable. But that's because you haven't won elections. But no, in terms of what was happening under Blair, it's not like you had a massive council house building programme. It's not as if you had an attempt to do what... I mean, Margaret Thatcher, I think, is, along with Clement Attlee the two most visionary prime ministers that we've ever had. Well, they were the two most transformative peacetime prime ministers. Exactly. And in the same way, we are still living with remnants of Attlee's Britain. I think we are living in Thatcher's Britain in a huge way. Well, we have the welfare state. Right, we have the welfare state. And we have the NHS. What's left of it? What's left of it? Well, we we spend almost £200 a year on it, so there's a fair bit left of it. what, What Thatcher understood, and this is what Blair didn't understand. And this is what I think Corbyn was trying to do. So she famously said economics is the method, the object is to change the soul. She created an economic environment which pumped out Tory voters, all right? That was what Right to Buy was about. That's what the attacks on the unions were about, the demise of heavy industry. It pumped out Tory voters. Blair, with his back-to-back election victories, didn't do that, right? He didn't create those Um, kind of economic machines which create Labour voters. And I genuinely believe that if even just a bit of that 2017 manifesto, so the commitments on council housing, education spending, um, 
empowering trade unions again. I think if those things had happened, I think they would have been com- comparable, perhaps not on the scale, but comparable on the same planet as the scale of Thatcher's changes, which meant we would have been with them for a really long time. But voters aren't forever. Political parties don't get to own voters forever. And although Blair did create a huge coalition to produce three, two landslides plus a comfortable victory third time, and Thatcher did reconfigure the way people voted during her time, millions of people who voted for Margaret Thatcher voted for Tony Blair. And that's because, I mean, you know, Tony Blair... If you're my honest opinion, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the first Labour leader in decades also happened, uh, you know, to end up being the godfather to one of Rupert Murdoch's children, right? He had to make a deal with an incredibly right-wing media landscape. Before that, when you had Labour prime ministers, it was when the Daily Mirror was the biggest selling newspaper in this country. The media environment was totally different. You know, made a bit of a deal with the devil. Uh, He says, look, don't go for us too hard. There are certain things we're not going to touch and it's not going to be hugely different to when the Conservatives were in power. And they go, OK, you know, that's what we're going to do. Um, I'm not saying that parties own voters far from it. I'm saying that a party which is serious about its longevity and its legacy understands that the policies that you introduce have to you know, produce the electorate that is most conducive to you winning power again. And I think that Tony Blair, for all of his vision and his strategy didn't do that. Is there a parliamentary route to your kind of communism? Um, probably not. Um, probably not. I don't know what the route is. And I'm saying this with... with in Well, that was my next question. If, yeah. it's, if it's not a parliamentary route, what is I, it? I absolutely do not know. Um, I do not know. And there have, of course, been different radical exper- experiments. You've had the Paris Commune, you've had the autonomists, you've had the attempt to sort of build, you know, autonomous small communities. You've got the thing which, you know, my colleague Aaron Bastani writes about, which is sort of going back to Marx's first principles and saying, look, technological change is going to bring this thing. I don't know what it is, and I don't pretend to either. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 
you were with Navarra, the uh, the website of mm-hmm. how would I describe left wing activism? I mean, it's journalism with a purpose. It's journalism that you hope will change things. So is the Daily Mail. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that may be a good or a bad comparison. <laughs> I'll leave you to make that. Is that a fair description uh, of it? I'd say we're I'd say we're left wing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call ourselves activists, though we do try and cover social movements and activism because that's something which is often neglected in legacy media outlets. Um, I mean, I know I've mentioned his name once already, but um, I I sometimes joke that we're uh, Rupert Murdoch ambition without Rupert Murdoch budget because the way Rupert Murdoch was like, this is a generation, I'm going to be responsive to you, I'm going to be moulded by you and mould you and it was, you know, boomers and older generation X's. We sort of see ourselves as being that, but for broke people. Are you making progress or or are you really on the wilder fringes? I would say that as a media organisation, we're definitely making progress and I can see that happening um, in terms of being able to have a entirely uh donation and subscription funded organization we don't require injections of venture capital like vice media you know we don't have a paywall you haven't got a big bank roller behind you so we've got six thousand paying supporters right and we have uh over two hundred thousand youtube subscribers to the channel and we have you know something like two million uh you know views Per month. So the funding is atomized. It's so not, the, not coming from a Mr. or a Miss Big. No, I wish it was. Um, no, it's from. Well, maybe you know, after the people hear this, mi- you may. Mr. Mr. You may and get Mrs. One. Um, you know, we, we encourage people to give the equivalent of one hour of their wage per month, but right. but whatever they can is is fine. So it's not right. huge. Donations. And you're able to survive on on that. And we've been able to grow on that. And grow on it um, too. And our best period of growth was actually post-Corbyn during the pandemic because my colleague Michael Walker um, took his live streaming show to three nights a week. Um, we, we nickname him the sober judge. He's very, you know, adept at sort of processing large amounts of information and conveying it in a way which helps people uh, find their way through it. And, you know, young people are an underserved audience when it comes to news and current affairs media. Mm. You know, they really, really are. And, and not many of them watch the mainstream uh, news and current affairs. Yeah, and that's because, you know, their viewing habits are different, they're in different places, but also because they don't see their reality being represented necessarily. Twitter, you use it quite a lot. You use it a lot even though you attract a lot of personal abuse. Uh, none of it merited... And some of it quite horrific. Um, is it water off a duck's back? Or actually, does it get you down at times? Um, I don't think that the, the human brain is designed to absorb that much violence and that much violent imagery. Um, I also think that you have to be realistic and say, if you think that social media is a worthwhile space of contestation, that is what's going to happen. So I think you've got to do two things. One is you preserve as much of your own mental well-being as you can. Which is difficult when you get the abuse you're getting. Um, I'm really lucky in terms of the people I've got around me. I've got a group of friends... You have who, a support system. Well, yeah, they're just really good at like taking my phone off me. <laughs> and just being like, like, just stop, just stop. Like, instead, why don't you watch you know, Tottenham Hotspur get you back can by be quite, Chelsea or make you feel better? I mean, you, and I, don't, I perfectly understand this. It's not a criticism at all. It's understand, but you can be quite spiky yourself. Yeah. When you, and, you, and I guess that winds them up even more. I like repartee. 
repartee is great. There's no problem with that at all. And repartee also implies sometimes a bit of humor. You, a lot of the time, you're dealing with anything but humor. You're dealing with dark, evil minds. I mean, where it's frightening is where you think it's going to have a, a real-world um, expression. And there have been times where I've been chased by the far right. Where what, f- physically chased? Yeah, yeah, like physically chased. Um, there have been times where I've seen a tweet where somebody was standing behind me in the queue for a supermarket and was like, oh, should I punch her in the back of the head? Um, and there So it has where... a real-world yeah. manifestation. Yeah, yeah, it does. But, but that's... I, I don't mean this in a dismissive way because it's horrible and it shouldn't happen. But that's the name of the game. And ultimately, the thing that I'm doing is I'm being paid. I make a living to advance a left-wing perspective. And I'm part of a movement of people who are doing that for free. And so I think that while you can say, this really sucks, it's horrible, and I wish it didn't happen. I think that it can get a bit, you know, the world's tiniest violin where you start going, oh my God, I'm such a victim. No, ultimately... I have a privileged position within a movement and I think you have to take that seriously. What do you think, since you're on the receiving end of it, what do you think makes people so horrible on social media? Is Uh, it anonymity? Does that help? No, I mean, I think that the studies done of it, which, you know, for instance, around the uh, Euros finals exit, which showed that the majority of people sending racist abuse to the three players who missed their penalties, they did so under their real names. So I don't oh, think they did. They oh. did. So I don't think that anonymity is necessarily. Well, then we must the know where they here. live. Well, I'm going to be like, what do you say about my boy Bukayo Saka? Um, the one time you'll ever see me standing up for an Arsenal. So it's player. not all anonymous, is what you say? Yeah. So it's not. It's not all anonymous. Um, I think there's there's a really good book about this called The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour, and one of the things that he talks about is that it has an addictive structure, right? So it is literally modelled to give your brain these little dopamine hits. It fosters a neurotic attachment and all of us are in some way involved in it. And I use all of us quite deliberately because while me and you might not be the most, you know, egregious abusers of Twitter crack, um, we are also addicts who are trying to distance ourselves from the worst part. But it can also drag you down in in the sense that when when and I think you're of the same frame of mind that if someone is really egregiously rude to you or unpleasant you are of a mind just to whack them back I mean I think that you've you you're always going I mean it's almost like the same rules as a fist fight right whoever wins a fist fight is whoever's got the greatest capacity for violence right and who who doesn't care how much they're getting hurt as long as they're hurting the other person. And ultimately, in a Twitter slanging match, that's the rule as well. And so you've got to have a cutoff in your own head of mm. how far you're going to go. Because it's a fight you can't win. Right, because it's a fight that you're not willing to win. That, yes. Right, and I think that, that I think that's a different thing. Um, for me, I think repartee is one thing. I really like having a clap back, and it's because I grew up listening to pirate radio. So pirate radio it was all about clashing and having the last word and saying something witty and I'm just like I can't help it I want to do this thing again but you ultimately have to draw a line you go like this isn't an argument which anyone is going to win in a meaningful sense ultimately whoever will prevail is the person who's able to inflict the most damage to the other because they don't mind how much they're damaging themselves and what next for Ash Sarkar um a nap (laughs) 
Uh, you mean you mean after this interview? <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, a Valium, please. Um, I, I mean, what Nick? I mean, you are uh, uh, you 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 are hugely active. You have a strong view of the way the world should be. You promote that view uh, um, with a, an articulate way of doing it. But you are in the political wilderness. To, to yeah. be part, are you content to stay there? Um, I think that my job, my job has changed. And I'm glad that it has changed. I think between 2017 and 2019, because I really wanted this thing to happen, right? I wanted council housing. I wanted an end to homelessness. I wanted to stop seeing the food bank that's around the corner from my house. I wanted to stop seeing that queue get longer every day. That I thought my job was just like, oh my God, get, get this thing over the line. And now there isn't a project of that nature. And now I think what my job is, and in some ways I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to do so is just take a step back and go, okay, so what's really going on? So um, I'm working on a book at the moment and it's called Minority Rule and it's looking at how culture wars are an outgrowth of what's happened to media over the last 40 years, what's happened to class composition over the last 40 years and then going, so what's going on behind that? What, what actually is going on with class? What actually is going on with um, you know the economic settlement which shapes our society? And it's a luxury to be able to do that as a luxury to be able to go I am going to just step back and do a vibe check of British politics and society and I think that that's my job um afterwards I don't I don't know um I'm really bad at making future plans and sticking to them I just sort of see where I end up and go okay hi Sarkar thank you for being with us today thanks for having me Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during this series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneil 50 That's five zero, all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmagle. Dopaminklubben.